which I like coming up to, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm kind of, as I think about that, I'm not sure which one of those I really am. And I think really the truth of the matter is we're kind of all of those at the same time at different things. And that's what we're kind of discovering about these Old Testament kings. And But I couldn't let today go by. This has kind of become the what stupid thing has Randy done this week type of deal as we begin this off. And sure enough, I did not want to disappoint you this week by not doing something really, really stupid. And I thought I could get some help from the dads in the room because how many dads somewhat are a little competitive every now and then? Okay, can I? Okay, Pat Howell, put your hand up, please. Thank you very much. I know, I know better than that. And by the way, I thought about starting this message off with uh, singing We Are the Champions uh, by myself today. But since Dirk Nowitzki did that this week, I decided that I would just Hold that back. But sometimes, dads, we're a little bit competitive. Well, on Wednesday nights, as often is the case, when our student ministry kind of finishes up and they're outside and they're visiting, somehow the competitive juices sometimes will rise up in some of our teenagers, especially our teenage boys. And so they'll always, they sometimes have a race to conclude the evening right out here in front of EVC. Pull up here about 8.30 on Wednesday night and you'll probably see a race of our student ministry. And I was walking out, totally unsuspected, um, walking across the street to check something in my car before coming back, before we head home. And the guys are running and they're, they're racing. And guys, you know kind of how this goes. is You kind of see the young guys racing and you kind of go, I think I could still take any of those kids, right? right? I, I, think, I think I could still take them. You know, I, I'm 40, soon to be 43 years old, but I, I think these legs still have one more race in them, right? So, so I decided... You know, they'd already run one race or two. They were still trying to determine who was the fastest, that type of thing. And I, for some reason, decided that I wanted to jump in the race. Now, I'm wearing these shoes that that are flip-flop type of things. And uh, so I get in the first race, and I get halfway down, and they fly off, okay? So then I think, you know, what great wisdom should have said at that time was, don't run. Do you think that's what great wisdom actually overcame me at that time? No, no. The, the great wisdom for me said, take off your shoes, okay? So that was, that was not real smart of me to do because I got in the second race and the race started. And then if I had some great music, I'd probably play it right now. <laughs> Chariots of Fire or something like that. And I take off. I've never been a very fast starter, but if you get me far enough, I'm, that's when I'm going to actually speed up and, and take care of, of whatever business I need to take care of. And so... Here the young guys are running ahead of me, and I'm catching up. But then I come to the stark realization. I think in my own mind I was in the lead at this particular point. Probably untrue. That would be a little slightly embellishing the story to something that it's really not. But I don't think I was actually in the lead. But I came to the stark realization that, number one, I have no shoes. Number two, I've not contemplated how I'm going to stop before I hit the fence at the end of the raceway down here. Number three, there is a concrete walkway that I have to cross before I now stop, and that's the actual finish line. Again, now I'm contemplating all these things very rapidly in my mind, and while I'm doing that, I hit a divot kind of in the ground. So it kind of looks like this. The first leg went down. I almost thought I could catch it up. The second leg went down again, and there was no hope at that point. And great was the fall thereof, okay? Matter of fact, my loving teenage daughter, not even getting close to the week of, or it was actually the week of Father's Day, she could have lied to me. She said, Dad, to be honest with you, I thought you were faking it, okay? I thought you were behind in the race and thought you were just kind of falling so it would make you look a little bit better. That was not the case. So I have a skinned-up shoulder, a skinned-up knee, and all week I was wearing flip-flops because every toe has a nice little sore on it. And today the skin may be falling off. So, Dads, can you... Can you go with me there? You thought, you, you know, this kind of goes to the country song is I'm not as young as I once was or I thought I could do that, but I can't do it anymore. So, dads, I know on Father's Day that, that you can relate to a story when the competitive juices kind of begin to flow and you think you can do what you used to do, but be smarter than me. Don't, don't try that. You know, Father's Day messages are really interesting. Why is it that Mother's Day messages, they're always nice and, you know, we love our moms, and moms have had such great impact on us. And then when pastors do Father's Day messages, they're like beating dads on the head. What, what, why is that? Okay, well, I thought about that this week, and I think much of it is because most dads or most pastors are dads as well. 
And so I, I guess go to, go to churches that have female pastors, and on Mother's Day, those are the really tough messages, I guess. But, but for us, I think as we look at our own fathering, and we think about the lot, kind of legacy that we want to leave, and we think about the importance of dads, let's just get the elephant in the room out of the room this morning. And that is, I know Father's Day messages are sometimes tough. They're tough because, as this song so aptly put, we really get our view of God as God the Father. Now, God designed it that way. But many times, if we've not had a father, we've not had a dad who, who really invested in us, sometimes that relationship has been strained. Um, sometimes it's the fact that we don't feel like we measure up as dads, and that seems like a really scary uh, thing that, that we have to do is to give our children a good view of God. It's a tough thing. And some of you don't have dad. Some of you, Father's Day is, is just a struggle to get through. Some of you have lost your dad. And you can't, you can't really relate anymore to what everybody else is kind of experiencing. So I know this day is tough. So I want to get that out, first of all, and, and let's talk about that and, and think about that. But dad, as you're here today, we do really have a huge responsibility because our kids do get a view of God as Father from us. Moms, you're vitally important because you give a whole nother view of God to our children. But dads, we're important. It's important for us not to disengage at whatever level. Dads, it's important for you. If you're an older dad, I encourage you, it's important for you to finish well. Because our kids need to know what it's like to finish well. Well, as we think about these Old Testament kings, the king that I want us to talk about today is a king that you're very familiar with. But if you were to read his resume today, if you were to read a, the back leaf of a book that he wrote, his story in synopsis would look something like this. He grew up the youngest of eight brothers, spent most of his early years as a farmer herding sheep, that left him stinky every day. He was musically gifted, but that was not a very useful skill when left in the field all day with sheep. He killed a bear and a mountain lion when the sheep were attacked. He was sent to take lunch to his brothers, but was drafted into the army. A showdown pitted him against a nine-foot-nine giant, and all he had was a slingshot. And he won. He went to a sleepover at a good friend's house, and the friend's dad tried to kill him. He married into the royal family, but his wife hated him because of his own popularity. A most wanted tag was put on him by the authorities, and he narrowly avoided death seven times. He became the CEO of a very powerful company. But while he was building his empire, he neglected his own home life. He had an affair with the wife of one of his best employees, and the woman became pregnant. So he had some of his friends murder her husband, and he took her as his wife. The first child of that marriage died shortly after his birth. His home was a mess. His oldest son followed in his lustful ways, and raped his own half-sister. That brother was then killed by the half-sister's brother. His son betrayed him, gathered an army, took over the company. He feared for his life, so he moved to another city until his son, who had betrayed him, was riding through the woods one day on his horse, and he got his hair stuck in his And he was killed by some of those same employees who had been specifically told to bring this son back to This man that I've just described is the man that the Bible calls was a man after God's own heart. A man who had sex with a woman that was not his wife. She becomes pregnant. He kills her husband. He's a murderer, an adulterer. He has a horrible home life. And yet this is a man that we call a man after God's own heart. A man who wrote a huge amount of the Old Testament and a man on whom the Old Testament is largely based. He is the greatest, the best 
king that Israel ever had. It is King David. And so when we think about someone's life that we want to emulate, and we hear a story like that, and we think, is this really a man that I want to emulate my life after? He was a man who was broken, yet he was a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people. When I think about King David, a man after God's own heart, I've always read that phrase, and I've got to be honest, I've thought about someone who was fashioned in the character after God's own heart. And when I read it this week, I looked at it a whole different way. I started off this message about a race, a pursuit. When we think about David, he is a man after God's own heart. See, it's a, it's a totally different way to look at it. David was a man who pursued God's heart. I love the story of David because in the story of David, we see a man who is incredibly broken, who is incredibly at times ashamed of his own way of life. He is brought, these charges are brought up against him in such a way there was a prophet, a man named Nathan. And when David sinned with Bathsheba, this, this prophet named Nathan came to him and he told him this elaborate story. And David got upset about the person in this elaborate story that Nathan said. And Nathan pointed the finger at David and said, David, it's you. You are the man in this story that you were so angry at that you want to kill. David, you are the one. David's heart broke. Psalm 51, we have today. And any time you blow it, any time you have struggled with sin, I want to encourage you to go to Psalm 51 because it is David's heart being poured out, all the emotion of saying, God, I am so sorry about my sin. God, I want to pursue, I want to be a man after your own heart. King David is our subject today. And we're going to look at King David in a variety of ways. But specifically, we could look at David as someone who defeats a giant. We could see David as someone who killed hundreds and thousands of people in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Philistines. He took them out. He rescued the people of Israel so many times. But I want us to look at David, the father. But first, first of all, we have to see that David was a shepherd king. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72 talks about this. David, someone who screwed up, who was broken, who was controlled by his passions and emotions. David was a man after God's own heart. Psalm 78 says, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. You see, David at heart was really just a shepherd boy. David always was in the process of taking care of sheep. It says, from following the nursing ewes, he brought, he was brought him, or God brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them, and he guided them with a skillful hand. You see, David was the shepherd king. I love the image of David being a shepherd because he has these two characteristics that this passage talks about. First of all, David shepherded the people of Israel with an upright heart. An upright heart. You cannot teach someone kindness and gentleness. It's either a characteristic you have or it's a characteristic that you don't have. That characteristic of kindness and gentleness. David was a king with an upright heart. And he went from shepherding sheep to shepherding God's people. And he found out that God's people are a lot like sheep. They stink most of the time. They are usually getting into things that they shouldn't get into. They typically follow one another. When they get cast on their back, they can't get up and they need help. David knew what it was like to shepherd God's people because he shepherded sheep. David was a man with an upright heart. When I think of life group leaders, people in our church who are in charge of what we call life groups, they are truly the shepherds of our congregation. And I use this passage to talk to them about what their roles and responsibilities are. And that is God gives us an upright heart. That is something only He can give us. But He doesn't just give us that ability to know and be gentle and kind with people. If you don't love people, then you shouldn't be in the people business. God gave David a heart for people, but He also gave him a second thing. David shepherded with skillful 
hands. He not only had an upright heart, he also had skillful hands. Hands that knew how to work a slingshot to kill a bear and a lion. Hands that knew how to use a shepherd's staff that when a sheep was down in a hole, he could put the nook of that shepherd's staff around that sheep and he could raise it with gentleness. David had skillful hands. He was a skillful musician. But he was also skillful in working with the people. God has given us each skills and abilities. Some of you are going to be using those skills and abilities this week in our VBS. You have skills to love kids. You have skills to do a craft. If you don't have any of those skills, you can at least say hello and welcome a child. David knew what it was like to be a shepherd king because God had given him a shepherd's heart, an upright heart, and skillful hands. And David used these skills that God had given him. I believe these are the two ingredients of leadership that are absolutely essential if we're going to lead people. To have a heart that is God's kind of heart. And to have skills and abilities that we're willing to utilize for Him. In the story of David, we could focus on lots of different characteristics. But on Father's Day, I want to focus on David as a father. Now I tell you, it could be a rather depressing story. But I promise you, it has a great conclusion. I love the character of David. The emotion, the passion, the pain, the sorrow, the conviction, and then the repentance and turning of his heart back to God. Whenever I've been struggling with faith, whenever I don't feel like I matter, whenever I don't feel like I measure up, it's David that I typically read. The first hundred psalms of David. As we go to the book of Psalms, David wrote these at a variety of periods in his life. As I told you last week, at times I've struggled with confidence. And I want you to know that every basketball game that I played in my junior high and high school career, I read Psalms 27 before every game. That was my psalm. Because it was a psalm of confidence. A psalm that God could meet my needs. Every time I've ever struggled, I've gone to Psalm... Whenever I've struggled with sin, I go to Psalm 51 and I read that Psalm of Confession. But today I want us to look at David as a father. And I want us to ask the question, what lessons of life do we learn from this king, David? The first one is a very tough lesson. And it's this. In the field of sin, we often reap more than we sow. Okay? If you're taking notes today, I'd love for you to write that down. In the field of sin, we often reap more than we sow. What that basically means is this. Sin has its consequences. Sin has its effects. And its effects are typically multiplicative, or they're multiplying in our life. They're multiplying, especially when it goes to generations. One sin in our life as parents can multiply and become a much greater issue in the lives of our kids. And in David's life, we see this. In the field of sin, we often reap more than we sow. Hosea 8, verse 7 talks about this. It says, and you may have heard this verse, For they sow to the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Well, I want you to think about over these last several weeks and months, the devastating tornadoes that all of a sudden appear and wipe out whole city and ruin massive amounts of life. That's what sin does in our life. And we've seen it. And as parents, and as dads especially, when we don't deal with the sin in our life, when we don't break the chain of sin in our own life, we can expect for it to go into the lives of our kids and to become something like a whirlwind that is out of our control. Sin, as long as it's in your life, is still able for you to seek God's help and control it. But once it's in the life of another, it becomes a whirlwind and becomes out of control. So the first thing is, in the field of sin, we reap more often than we sow. I want to to show you a principle today that we could call the chain of generational sin. We're going to look at it in the life of David. You see, Saul's life was primarily the sin of pride. David's life, we see the main sin that David struggled with 
was a sin of lust. Pride in the life of Saul, but lust in the life of David. And I want to show you a progression that takes place. And we've created kind of a diagram here that, that shows some of this progression. We see the famous example of David, who lust became something that was out of control in his own life. You can read the headlines of today, right? Congressman Weiner. You see his resignation this week. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Tiger Woods. And we could go on and on to persons, politicians, pastors who fall into this cycle of sin, especially around lust. And in David's life, we see this issue of lust in his own life. For David, it came on a spring evening. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings typically go to battle, David was on the rooftop. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And both David and Bathsheba, the woman that he saw bathing, and this is the case, this is what happened. David is on the rooftop. Typically, he would be out at war, but David didn't go to war this particular spring. He stayed at home. And idle hands and idle eyes became something in David's life that led him into sin. And David is looking at his kingdom, as he would sometimes do. From the rooftop of his castle, he looked out and he saw a woman who was bathing. And David, by passing by that first glance, that would not be sin. That's just temptation. But David fixed his eyes upon her. He saw that she was beautiful. Who knows that Bathsheba didn't even, she, she may have known that the king would often come and decided that on this particular night she would go out on the rooftop. You see, David and Bathsheba, then they were both there. They were both available. And David called to Bathsheba. He sent some men to go retrieve her. And he knew that she was married, but he still slept with her. And it didn't stop there. David's lust went even to the point where he wanted her to be his wife once he found out that she was pregnant. So she, he brought her husband back from the war that he was involved in, and he encouraged him to go sleep with his wife. But he wouldn't do it. He said, why, when all my friends are out at battle, why would I go into battle? And David finally sent him back to battle. And he told his general to go towards the city wall and then pull back and leave Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba, leave him exposed. And he was killed. David commits murder, premeditated murder. So you see lust in David's life. But I want you to see what happens in his children's lives. In his children's life, he reaps more than he sows. What happens in David's life is he has his oldest son. His name is Amnon. And this reads right out of the pages of Jerry Springer because Amnon falls in love with his half-sister. Her name was Tamar. And David's lust goes to the next level with Amnon. And Amnon tricks and deceives his half-sister to come and taking care of him when he's sick. And Tamar comes and takes care of him. And at some point during that time, he rapes her. And then he discredits her own character, puts her away, and leaves her. And Tamar is this wounded woman who has fallen into this sin of lust from her half-brother, Amnon. The story doesn't just end there because David's other son, Absalom, he also goes to that next level. And he takes this. And when Absalom begins to take over the throne, 2 Samuel 16, it says he had an advisor that advised Absalom that what he should do is take some of David's concubines and pitch a tent on a rooftop. Remember that same rooftop? The same rooftop that David sinned with Bathsheba. He sends Absalom. Absalom pitches a tent and he brings in one by one David's concubines and he sleeps with them in front of all of Israel. You see, dads, what we have to realize, if we don't deal with our own sin, it goes into the lives of our children and becomes multiplied to an even greater amount. That was the sin of lust. David also struggled with the sin of deception and murder. In David's life, it was how he sent Uriah out 
and he wanted Bathsheba to be his wife. She was pregnant with his child. He, now he sends Uriah out. Uriah is killed. So David commits murder. Now take it to the lives of his children. Remember the story with Amnon and Tamar. Absalom was Tamar's full brother. When he found out that his sister had been raped, he was angry. Matter of fact, the, the actual emotion that David expresses, the only thing that we hear from David when he finds out what Amnon did to Tamar is that he just says he was angry. He didn't do anything about it. But Absalom decided he would do something about it. He waited for two full years. He let everything cool down. And then he went to David, his father, and he said, I'd like to have all the king's children over to my house to eat. I'd like to have a party. Would you allow all the king's sons and daughters to come to my house? And he conspires, and he gets Amnon there. And all his bitterness comes out at once. And he kills the brother who had raped his sister. You see, David experienced murder. He murdered someone. And it came to David's own house. It multiplied. In the field of sin, we often reap more than we sow. So we see murder coming into David's home. How about this one? Parental passivity, which leads to rebellion. Can you imagine what it was like to live in one of David's castles, in, one of, in part of his kingdom? David had multiple wives. If you'll remember back in Deuteronomy, it says that David should not have multiple wives. But can you imagine that, or that a king of Israel should not have multiple wives? But can you imagine the jealousy that went on? This would be a great TV reality show, wouldn't it? The, the wives of David. Can you imagine as they would have their brood of children and they would all get together and they would talk about what was going on, and they would talk about how they were going to go against another wife and all of her kids. Can you imagine the jealousy that was going on inside this castle? Then you have situations like with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, and you see all these things that take place. What was going on in David's life was this, parental passivity. All these things were happening, and David chose to do nothing about it. It brings it to home for us, doesn't it? When we think about our own parenting, and we think about the situations that we get into, and it's so often, being having Jennifer as an educator, so, so many times she'll be dealing with children, and she'll have parents who come in, and they'll talk about the things that the child did when they were at school, and the parents inevitably will say, well, not my child. My child would never do that. See, our parental passivity, when the when the fact of the matter comes to the place where we choose not to act, we stick our heads in the sand, we choose to not show the, the kind of things that we need to show to help our children be guided to the place where they need to be. If we don't do that when they're young, when they become old, it's hard for us to get them back. You know that the, the passage of Scripture that says, Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. It doesn't say when he's a teenager, he won't stray away. It doesn't say when he's in his 20s, he won't be an idiot. Okay, It doesn't say any of those things. But it says when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's the character that we place within our lives, the lives of our kids, that it's not parental passivity that we see in David's life. He just gets angry at Amnon for raping his sister. He doesn't deal with him. He doesn't deal with his son Absalom as he begins to come back and desire to take over David's throne. Here's what Amnon did. Or here's what Absalom did. Absalom was the son who killed his brother. David doesn't deal with that. He mourns his son Amnon, but he doesn't deal with Absalom. Absalom goes away to his grandfather's kingdom. He was, he was the king of a place called Geshur. Absalom goes to his kingdom. For two years, David has no communication. David's way of dealing with his son, whom he had a disagreement with, was just to write him off and to seek no communication. How many families do we see like that? Simply no communication. I love you, but I'm going to teach you that you did wrong by not being in communication with you. For two years, Absalom, Absalom did that. For two years, David ignored his son. 
Finally, his top general, Joab, comes to David and convinces David to finally bring his son back to the kingdom. And David does so. He brings Absalom back. But he still has no communication with him. For four more years, David does not speak to his son Absalom. Absalom, just like any son who would desire attention, will do anything to get David's attention. So he brings his entourage on a daily basis. He rides his chariot up to David's court and he sits outside. And every person that's coming in for judgment that wants David to make some decision in their life, Absalom will talk to them. And he will convince them that if they'll just do what he says, that their situation will be rectified. Absalom is drawing the heart of the people away from David to the point where Absalom then rebels and takes over the throne. And David has to leave and go away and take all of his wives and all of his children to another place while Absalom sets up kingdom. And we go to that passage that we talked about earlier where he takes David's concubines that he had left in charge of his house and he sleeps with them to the open shame of this king. You see, parental passivity in David's life, for Absalom it leads to him rebelling, and then eventually what happens is this. Absalom is riding, literally most of the kings, the Israelite kings would ride a mule. And Absalom is riding this mule out into the forest. And Absalom was a man who said his hair was just enormous, kind of like the the character of Samson. These stories are in the Bible. They're for you to read. They're great stories. Absalom is riding along. And his hair gets stuck in the thicket of a huge tree. And the mule rides out from under him, and there is Absalom. And Joab the general comes back, and he kills David's son. You see, sin in our life, when we don't deal with it, rebellion will eventually lead to death. The final thing we see in David's life and also in his children's life is this. We see multiple wives taken for David. Remember what Deuteronomy 17, 17 says. It said, A a king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away from God. Not quite sure how many wives David had. As I read it in Scripture, it seems to be over 10 to 15, maybe 20. We really don't know. But you see, one mistake in David's life leads to a mistake in his son's life. King Solomon. 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4 says, Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Now, do the math. That's 1,000 ladies to try to keep happy in his lifetime, okay? And we say that Solomon is the wisest man in the world. Now, sometimes I wonder, 1,000. And what happens is Solomon's heart is turned away. That's exactly what Scripture says. And his wives turned away his heart. You see, these wives were from all these other kingdoms. Most of them were political marriages that he would do so in treaties with other kings. He would marry someone else's king's daughter and there would be a marriage and they would bring their gods into Israel the people that they worshipped, the gods that they worshipped. And they turned away Solomon's heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart, the incredible passage, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Here's another statement I'd encourage you to write down. When it really comes to the place where we're thinking about the lives of our kids and how our own sin is multiplied in their lives, here's the statement I want you to remember today. When the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change, then we will change. When the pain of staying the same, when the pain of continually doing what you're doing remains so great that it is greater than the pain of change, that's when we will choose. When we see it multiplied into the lives of our kids, when we see it multiplied in the lives of our grandkids, when those things begin to happen, we go, we come to a place of repentance 
and finally say, God, I want you to be king of my heart. So dads, the questions that I want us to ask today are simply this. What are the patterns of sin that you will pass on to the next generation? What are they? What are the things that you struggle with that prayerfully today that you will come to that realization that the pain of staying the same will be greater than the pain that it will take to change that? How are you dealing with these patterns? And how can these chains of sin be broken in your own heart? Now, if we were to stop here today, this would be a very depressing message. That if we sow in the field of sin, we are going to reap more than we sow. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. You've experienced that. I've experienced that in my own life. That my own sin seems to be multiplied in the lives of others. Sometimes I actually am thankful that I don't have a son, that I won't pass on some of the same mental sins that I struggle with. But chances are I may have grandsons. And the question is, am I going to do the hard work in my life now that their lives can be impacted? But if we stopped here, it would be a depressing message. But thank God we don't stop here. The hope of David's life is this. Do not forget, he is a man after God's own heart. And I'm a little bit sad today that I'm only dealing with one message on the life of David because there's so many positive things that we could see in the life of David, but I just want to hit just a few of them. Here's the hope of this message. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, which says this, You shall not bow down to them, talking about gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Remember the song that we sang? He's a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What this passage is saying is, our sin is going to be passed on to the third and fourth generation. You're going, I thought you said there was hope in this message. There is. Here's the hope. It comes just a little bit later, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. We're going to come back to that. Steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. To what? To a thousand generations. Your sin, you will reap more than you sow in the lives of your family to the third and fourth generation. But your legacy of faith will literally go to thousands of generations when you call God your God. When you pursue after God like David pursued after God. When he was a man after God's own heart. David left a legacy of faith. And moms and dads today, you and I have the privilege, the opportunity to be able to leave a legacy of faith. I did a funeral this past Tuesday. And any time I do a funeral, and any time I'm reminded of death, I think about this. What's the legacy that I leave? When I'm dead and gone, I don't just want a tombstone. When I'm dead and gone, I don't just want an inheritance to go to my kids. When I'm dead and gone, I want the impact that I have had in the lives of Kara and Allison to make a difference. As you heard Bart share, as he talked about even this sabbatical that he's on right now, when we are called before God, yes, God will ask us, what did we do with EVC? But He will first ask Bart what he did with Luke and Trinity. He will first ask me what I did with Kara and Allison. What will He ask of you? Whose legacy of faith are you building? The story of David is one of incredible hope. We are, have been impacted today by the life of David, by his mistakes, by his emotions, by the psalms that he's written, by the things in his life. We've been impacted to literally a thousand generations beyond David. The story of David, he, he was down, but he got back up. The best gauge of an offensive lineman, I've heard this on SportsCenter time and time again, is not when he gets knocked down but it's how many times he decides to get back up. How many times will he get knocked down, but how many times will he get back up? David kept getting up. And the legacy of David is in this final passage I want to share. 1 Chronicles 29, 9 and 10. David is an old man. He's old. He's so old to the point where he can't even keep warm. His body cannot keep warm. They literally are putting covers upon covers upon David. David is dying. 
and Solomon becomes king. There's a great story there. I don't have time to get, go into it. But Bathsheba is again in the mix. Bathsheba seems to always be coming into the mix. Solomon was the son of this marriage of Bathsheba and David. And you can imagine, I want you just to go in your mind's eye right now and imagine David lying on this bed and his son comes in, Solomon, the man who's going to be king. And he's old and he's frail. And he brings Solomon to his side. And he brings him in. And he brings his head down. And he rises up with both his hands and he pushes himself up off the bed. And he says this passage to Solomon. I believe he literally is whispering it. But moms and dads, you know what kind of a whisper it is. You're being very clear. It's what I, It's a whisper I used to get when I was sitting in church and when I was acting up, my mom's hand would be cupped over my, he, my ear and she would say, do you want to go to the car? Okay? I don't know what was in the car, but I knew I did not want to go there. Okay? I would straighten up and I don't know what I was doing, but I did something different. I did not want to go to the car. And David pulls himself up and he whispers into Solomon's ear. And you can imagine the life of David. He's thinking about his own sin with Bathsheba. He's thinking about he hadn't dealt with Amnon's sin. He's thinking, I didn't deal with Absalom the way that I should have. I should have done so many things different. And now I'm at the end of my life. What do I want to pass on to my son? What do I want him to know? Parents, this is it. First Chronicles 29, 9 and 10. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and He understands every plan and thought. David knew that he understood. The Lord searched his heart. He's the same one who writes Psalm 139. Psalm 139, which says, Search me and know me, O God. Know my innermost thoughts. David knew that God already knew these things. And he says to Solomon, And if you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. I want to close with just these four things. How do you build a legacy of faith? How in the world do we not simply go into the field of sin and continue to reap more than we sow? How do we build a legacy of faith? David tells us, know the God of your father. Know the God of your father. You see, for David, David wanted to tell Solomon, Solomon, the most important thing is that you know my God. Solomon, you may not have seen all the things from my life the way that you should have seen them, but Solomon, I want you to know my God. The word here is hesed. It is a Hebrew word, but it means the steadfast love of God. If you read in the ESV, um, all throughout Psalms, you'll see this word hesed, or you'll see the steadfast love. In the NIV, it is loving kindness, which to me just doesn't carry the same connotation that the idea of steadfast love. Steadfast love is this. It is me holding on to God so tightly, as tightly as I possibly can hold on to, but then when my strength totally gives way, it is knowing that God has had hold of me the whole time. It's His steadfast love. David says to Solomon, Solomon, you have to know my God. The question for us today, dads, is this. Do your kids know your God? What is the God that you have in your heart? You show your kids what God you worship. You show them by how you spend your time, by what you spend your money on, by the things that you spend uh, your time thinking about. That's really your God. That's who you worship. Who is it that you worship? If you were to tell your kids, know my God, who do you think they would worship. Moms and dads, we can leave a legacy of faith by telling our kids to know our God. But first that means that we must live a life that knows our God. My question to you is, do you know God today? Do you have that relationship with Him that is between you and Him? Do you have that personal walk with Him? The second thing 
that David tells Solomon is serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Serve him with a whole heart. You remember it says that wives, many wives would draw the heart of the king away, but David had a heart after God's own heart. What I'd encourage you to do today is write a heart on your paper. Write a heart right there. And then ask yourself this, how much of my heart is really God's? Are you serving Him with a whole heart? Are you serving Him with a half heart? Are you serving with a quarter heart? What is in control of your life today? Are you serving God with a whole heart and a willing mind? So the question is this, how much of your heart is God's? Your intents, your motivations, how much of your heart is truly God's? The third thing David says to Solomon, if you're leaving a legacy of faith, he says, seek him and he will be found by you. See, it's that whole idea of pursuit. David says, Solomon, you can be a man after God's own heart. Solomon, even when you screwed up royally, you can be a man after God's own heart. Serve God, but seek Him. Seek Him, pursue Him, and He will be found by you. The question is, are you pursuing God? Are you pursuing after Him? If you think of yourself on a, on a hunt, what do you look for? You look for tracks, right? You look for evidences of where an animal has been. Where are the tracks of God in your own life? Where do you see God at work? How are you joining Him in that work? Where do you see God moving? You see, pursuing God. How do you pursue God? You pursue Him by reading His Word. You pursue Him by being active in His local church, by being a part of Him. But you pursue Him most of all by spending time with Him. How are you pursuing God? And the final thing that David says to Solomon is, be strong and do it. Be strong and do it. This is a message for men. This is a message for dads. Be strong and do it. For too many times and too many years, the church has been a place that has pandered typically to ladies. And men who typically come in go, the church really doesn't have anything for me. They do Bible studies there. They do VBS. They do this. They do that. What do they do for men? Well, here is David's challenge to us men. Be strong and do it. The Hebrew word is fun to say. It is kazak. Would you guys say it with me today? It is kazak. It's really fun to say, men. Be really manly. You have to be a manly man to even say this word. It is kazak. It means this, be strong and do it. And you can imagine David, the last thing I want you to remember about this message today is that David gets up and he says to Solomon, Solomon, above all, kazak, be strong and do it. Don't be some mealy-mouthed little kid anymore. Be strong and do it. If you want to walk in faith, Solomon, it's not going to be easy. The thing you're going to do, have to do most of all, is you're going to have to die to your own flesh. Solomon, you've seen in my life how I have messed that up. Solomon, it can be different. EVC, it can be different for us. Be strong. Lessons of life. Would you bow with me this morning? What are the things in your life that you need to think about? As I share different points about David, my guess is you've seen different points in your own life. There's probably not a person in this room that has not been affected by sexual sin in your life or in the life of someone very dear to you. Maybe it was sin that was perpetrated upon you. There's forgiveness. There's grace in the life of Jesus Christ. Do you know God today? Do you know Him as your personal Lord and Savior? If not, that's the only place for us to begin. Knowing that Christ desires to come into our life and He wants to be our Savior and Lord. Others of you, you've seen yourself somewhere in this message. I know I am all throughout it. My own struggles, 
that I don't want to pass on to the next. Where will be the accountability in your life? Where will it come from? Where are the relationships who will help you stand? We all need it. Father, I pray that you would be with us today. That you would be with every person who's here. That you would encourage them, Father. That it's not the first half of David's life that we have to look at and see that sin is going to reign in our life. But it's the second half that we see as David saying to Solomon, Solomon, know my God. Serve my God. Pursue Him. Be strong and do it. God, give us Your strength. We cannot do it in our own strength. Give us Your strength today to follow You, to glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen. You see, pride manifests it self in our life in many ways. Sometimes it's a sense of pride where we want people to see us. Sometimes it's a sense of blaming others. Sometimes it's a sense of, I don't have confidence that God can do these things in my life. What is it in your life? What are these life lessons that we can learn from these Old Testament kings? Some are good kings. We're going to look at one next week as we look at David who has a heart after God's own heart. On Father's Day, we're going to talk about how David was a father king. But from the life of Saul, we can see what it's like to be disobedient. Sadly, the story of Saul ends as he loses in battle, and he and his son are both killed. But that didn't have to be the story of Saul. And my question for you is, what's going to be your story? Are you going to be the obedient as you learn from God, or are you going to be the disobedient? Let's pray if we could this morning. Father, I thank You for this character, this living, breathing character in Saul, that we can look at his life and see our own lives imprinted. We can see our own pride and our own weakness on display for others to see. Father, I pray for everybody here this morning, Lord, that You would give us a heart that would be an obedient heart after You. God, I pray that You would show Yourself to us and that we would know and acknowledge what it is that You desire for us to be and to do. God, if there's somebody here who does not have a relationship with You, Father, even in the life of Saul, we can see what disobedience leads to. So, Father, but You call us in the grace and mercy of Christ. You call us to Yourself. So, Father, I pray for that one who may not know You today, that they might choose You as their God King, their representative, their one who took upon Yourself our sin. God, I pray that they would come to know You today. Lord, for the rest of us who struggle with control, with pride, with lack of confidence, with blaming others. God, I pray that You'd speak to our heart. But Lord, as we see this in this character of Saul, we can also see how You desire to love us through it and to build us up to be the people of God that You've called us to be. That's my prayer today. In Jesus' name, Amen.